Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, uh, I've got one announcement. We have the ladies' prayer meeting on uh, Saturday morning, 1030, here at the church. And what are they supposed to bring? Nothing. Don't bring anything, but bring yourself and your, hopefully your Bible. And uh, anything else going on? I don't think so. Well, before we begin, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship. And um, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we stand in awe as we study the complexity of the plan of salvation, all that was needed to have been accomplished at the cross, all that was done by you throughout the uh, 4,000 years of human history leading up to that uh, time that provided for the cross, that prepared for the cross and prepared uh, the human race for knowledge about Jesus Christ and his person and work. Father, we're Thankful that we have the, this record in the Old Testament and the wisdom that it gives us. Father, we're, we pray that as we continue our study through Hebrews, that we'll come to a greater understanding of the, all of these dynamics and especially how they relate to our own spiritual life and how they are to motivate us and spur us on to greater spiritual growth and advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, before we get started in Hebrews 10, I want to give you a little report on my trip this last week, quick trip to uh, Washington, D.C. for the APAC conference. APAC, there we go, is the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. This was started back in the 1950s and has continued up to the present. It is a registered lobby and it's not affiliated with any political party. It is truly bipartisan, so at all their events, they have an equal number of Democrats and an equal number of Republicans. They emphasize the one thing everybody has in common is a desire to protect the nation Israel and to make sure that uh, any laws or policies that are established by the United States uh, are in support of, of uh, Israel. And they have this national policy con- conference every year at this time in, in the spring in Washington, D.C., and it ultimately is geared to informing the members of quite a few things that are going on politically, things that are going on in Israel. They usually have, you know, key uh, political 
and politicians from Israel there. Uh, Zippy Livni spoke Sunday night, and um, uh, Shimon Perez spoke Monday morning. I didn't. I went right left right after church on Sunday, so I missed all of the speakers Sunday. And then uh, Netanyahu spoke via satellite on Monday night. There were a number of other politicians, congressmen, um, former congressmen, uh, various other officials in the U.S. government that spoke at various plenary sessions during the day. It was held at the Washington Convention Center, which is an enormous place. It's longer inside. It's a big rectangle. It's longer inside than the Washington Monument is tall. You stand at one end, and you can't see the speaker in the middle. If you're sitting at one of the tables on the end, you, you, you can see that there is somebody there, but barely. So all around the room, there's huge widescreen projection screens up on the wall, so we, which, unless you're sitting right in front of the speaker, actually gives you a better view of, of the speaker. And they, um, the emphasis is on preparing, you know, informing everybody about current events and policies, laws that are on, uh, being proposed. And then on Tuesday afternoon or starting late morning, they go to meet with their congressional representatives and senators and to lobby them for various pieces of legislation that happen to be up before uh, Congress. And that was an education. Um, Tuesday, Monday morning, I went to the first plenary session with uh, Paris, and then after that, there was a session where everybody went to a room, so all the Texans were in one room, and all, everybody from California in another room in New York, and you sat according to your congressional district, and then they talked about some pieces of legislation that were uh, that needed to be emphasized, and they were training everybody in what they needed to do to go present their case uh, for these uh, pieces of legislation uh, to their congressman and senator. And that was an education. I'd never been to anything uh, like that before, so that was that was helpful. And I'll come back to that, the one, one of the key pieces of legislation they were emphasizing in a minute. And then in the afternoon, I went to a session that was uh, basically how the Palestinians miss every opportunity to settle the problem. And it was a history of the Arab-Israeli problem from 1946 up to the present. And there were a few things I learned there, even though I've taught on that and read a, a lot on that. There's always a few things you learn that you didn't quite understand. And I think I came away with a better understanding of the two-state solution than I, I had before. And the two-state solution, as it was emphasized by Netanyahu, is based on an under, uh, Israel's security that, uh, first and foremost, hum, the Palestinians, Hamas and Hezbollah, have to recognize the sovereignty of the state of Israel, their right to exist, and if there is a settlement, um, then all previous problems or disagreements have to be forgotten and never brought up again. And they're not going to go to the table unless they have that. They're just not going to opt for a two-state solution. The problem is we have politicians on both sides of the aisle who have been in the executive office over the last 30 years who see settling the problem in the Middle East as the great political coup and great political feather in their hat. And so it seems that they will push Israel to 
make a decision that it really isn't in their best interest simply so the American politicians can feel, uh, can feel good about this. And even though Israel has offered more than they ever should, as they did in the uh, late 90s, and still the Palestinians won't accept it, which shows that they want everything. They don't want just a little bit. If they don't get 100% of the land, they don't want any of it. They don't want any settlement. And the thing we're going to have to watch is that we have too many politicians here that will talk about supporting Israel, and they put up a good talk, and they know how to say the right thing, and they know just the right phrases to use. But then behind the scenes, they're putting pressure on different groups in Israel to give up this or give up that and to not really uh, press for for their security because they know they can't get anywhere with Hamas and Hezbollah. They're not going to get them to back off of any of their claims. They can't get them to to recognize the state of Israel. They've been trying for uh, 60 plus years to get the Arabs to recognize the right of the state of Israel to exist, and they won't budge at all. And they're not going to budge. So. The only people who seem willing to talk and budge and compromise are the Israelis. And so the West typically pressures them to give up more and more, hoping that something will happen. So that has to be, uh, we have to watch that. That was the, the first session in the afternoon. The second session in the afternoon was titled, uh, Understanding Our Evangelical Christian Allies. And that was a... Uh, an enjoyable session. There were two others I had thought about going to because they dealt, they focused more on the military uh, defense issues. But at the last minute, I'd originally signed up for it, and I decided, okay, I'm still I'm going to go to that. And they had four panel members. One was uh, a lady by the name of Susan Michaels, who is the uh, Washington director of the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem. And this was a Christian organization that established an embassy in Jerusalem. In the context of, of uh, this was in the early uh, 80s, late 70s, early 80s, after Israel had declared Jerusalem to be their capital, and all of these embassies that had been there when it was under control of Jordan earlier left. And they weren't going to have an embassy in Jerusalem, so they established this international Christian embassy there, and they have an a different theological position. I really hadn't heard this term before. They, they, I've read some of their stuff since I've been back, and they're not exactly fond of dispensationalists, even though they are very Zionist and have some good material on their website on the history of Zionism and Christian Zionism. But they call themselves covenantalists, not covenant theology, but covenantalists because they believe in the future fulfillment of the historic covenants to Israel. So they're not into a covenant theology replacement theology, but uh, in terms of eschatology, they're what I always heard was called historical premillennialism, which means it's not a dispensational premillennialism. It is a, it's called historic premillennialism because uh, they want to say this was the view of the early church, and they didn't, really didn't have a defined uh, view on dispensations. And when she spoke one time, she said something about dispensationalists, and my response, my, my thought was, well, you don't understand dispensationalism. But other than that comment, I was impressed by her answers. second man whose name I don't remember was a pastor of a Baptist church in Tennessee, 
and he is a member of the, the APAC organization in Atlanta and on the board in Atlanta. And he's also in John Hagee's uh, group. They call it CUPI, uh, the Christians United for the Protection of Israel. And that these Jews are extremely impressed with Hagee and his organization and what it is doing. Very much so and very positive. And then a third individual that was on the panel was an evangelical Christian who's a former congressman by the name of Randy Tate, I believe, who is from Washington State, now has his own lobby organization in uh, in the D.C. area. And then there was a Jewish fellow, and I can't remember his name, who was a young man, um, well, in his 30s, who was the moderator. And he was not a Christian, but he asked the hard questions. And in recent months, I've become aware that there is a huge assault from the liberal left against to try to drive a wedge between the evangelicals and the Jews and the disinformation and misinformation and just downright bordering on slanderous stuff that is coming out of that uh, that side uh, has struck home because they, some of you are familiar. They, there was a group of um, people who were making a documentary who went with us to Israel a couple of years ago, and they listened too much to some of this, and that really becomes a theme in that final form of that documentary. and doesn't make us look very good because that's their orientation. But this is the this is a big battle, and there are position papers on the Christian International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem website, ICEJ.org, I believe. Uh, there are numerous position papers on going back to 2001, 2002, dealing with this issue, and that the 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 two basic myths are the only reason those evangelicals want to help Israel is because they want to proselytize you. And if you let them in and are, are, you know, ally yourselves with them, then they're only after one thing, and that is to proselytize you. It's all, they're just self-serving. And the second reason is because they're just trying to get all these Jews back into Israel so that Jesus will come back. Neither of which is true. And the, the moderator brought up both of those questions to ask the panel. And both uh, Susan Michaels and the Baptist pastor answered the questions very well. I was ready to stand up during the Q&A and, and uh, make a few comments, but after they got through, I didn't need to add anything. They made it very clear that they don't know, and I don't know, any evangelical Christian who believes we can speed up the timing of Jesus' return by getting any Jews back to the land any faster. I mean, that's just not a motivation, and they both made it very clear that the there are Two basic reasons that evangelicals support Israel. And number one is, and this has been demonstrated in survey after survey after survey over the last 30 or 40 years, is because we believe that they are our ally as a democratic state in the Middle East. They're our only ally there, and therefore we need to support them. And the number two reason is Genesis 12.3, those who... Bless Israel will be blessed. And, and as Susan Michaels made the point, she said, and that's the hidden agenda. We just want blessing. And that brought out a lot of chuckles and, uh, and laughs. So after, um, at, at the end of their session, they went through a lot of stuff. At the end of their session, they um, had a Q&A, and there were about five or six people at each of the two microphones. There were about 200 people in the room that came to, came to hear this. And so 
seven, there were four or five people at each microphone, and half of them were rabbis. And they were going to the microphone to turn and address all of their fellow Jews that were there saying, you don't have anything to worry about these evangelicals. They love you. One, one rabbi said, I have never been so blessed. You really want to get blessing, you just go speak at some evangelical church, and they will treat you like royalty. They love you just because you're Jewish. And that's it. And uh, another rabbi spoke about the fact that he had had John Hagee at his speak at his synagogue, a synagogue of about 5,000 in uh, downtown Los Angeles. And also another rabbi spoke of having been involved with three different um, events with uh, with Coopy and how they, they were just tremendous and how much they appreciated all of the evangelicals and and their support. So that was that was. Um, that was good to hear, and it was a, it was an extremely encouraging and positive meeting. And then afterwards, a lot of people, more so than I've seen it at any other workshop, went forward to ask questions of the panelists. And I went up there because I wanted to find out who a couple of these people were. And they, um, um, one guy, a, Fr- a Jewish man from France with a heavy French accent, was asking Susan Michael something. She briefly answered it, and then somebody else distracted her. And then I started giving him an answer and started explaining the parallel development of Christian Zionism and Jewish Zionism in the 19th century. Next thing I realized, I was giving a lecture to about 20 people. <laughs> And they had never heard the, the the real Christian side of this and the history of it going back into the 16th century, and the fact that many uh, the, many of the original uh, theologians who were returning to a more literal view of Israel in Scripture in England in this in the 1600s were martyred because they they were pro-Israel and pro-Semitic, and they were burned at the stake because of that. And uh, the very first British writer, theologian, pastor to write, uh, he wrote about a thousand-page commentary, and he had a page and a half on the Jews, and they burned him at the stake for it because he believed in a literal Israel. And so Christian Zionism has a has a rich heritage, and so we, we um, uh, that was that was a good opportunity to um, to be there. And then I was there also with a friend of mine from Houston who is on the board here, and he grabbed me when I was up there because he's personal friends with the moderator of the group and said, you know, we've got to have Robbie here next year speaking at this thing. He needs to be on the panel. So I'm just along for the ride of this. I don't know where this is headed, but um, I think it's something uh, personally that I think is uh, worth being involved in. Uh, because of its relationship to Israel. The main piece of legislation that they're emphasizing is a bill that you can read about on the APAC website. It's just A-I-P-A-C, APAC.org or .com, and there's a lot of information up there, but it has to do with trying to uh, deal with this guy and his problems. And um, the Iranians, and the they're getting extremely close to having uh, enriched uranium. In fact, in a worst-case scenario, by this time next year, they will have produced enough uh, uranium to produce a bomb. And that's worst-case scenario. Maybe a little later, I saw it on the news today, but didn't have time to watch it or hear the report, that there's a Senate report that says that the Iranians are a lot closer to having bomb-grade uranium than they had uh, than they had thought before. 
And so uh, this is something we should we definitely need to be concerned about. And we're not the only ones. Many, most of the Sunni nations, remember uh, Iran is, is a Shia, it's Shiite. Most of the Sunni nations do not want a Shiite nation having nuclear weapons. And so they will, I've been told and heard this from many people for the last six months, that if Israel attacks Iran, that the other Arab nations will turn their back and act as if it didn't happen because they don't want Iran getting nuclear weapons uh, weapons either. And, of course, Ahmadinejad's job is just uh, crazy. He has said in a speech in uh, October of 2005, God willing, we will soon experience a world without the United States and Zionism. And the supreme leader uh, of the Iranian um, mullahs is al-Khamenei, and he has said in December 15th of 2000, Iran's stance has always been clear on this ugly phenomenon, that's Israel. We have repeatedly said that this cancerous tumor of a state should be removed from the region. And just so you get a real taste of this, wait a minute. Got that sound? I'll see if I can. You don't need to hear it. You can just read it. Well, they're just lovely people. Yeah. Well, here's a map of the range of uh, their ballistic missiles. And as you can see, Iran can launch missiles to hit Europe, hit Russia, hit Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, India, uh, China, uh, Kazakhstan. So they can, uh, uh, they can carry, they have the, the ability to carry a nuclear weapon into any of these areas. Now, what the, what's been proposed in both bipartisan sponsorship in both the House and the Senate, the House was just up last week, uh, is uh, Dick Durbin, in, who's a Democrat from Illinois, Indiana, Indiana, Illinois, and John Kyle, who's a Republican from Arizona, have co-sponsored this legislation. There's also um, uh, the House has sponsored it, and it's designed to uh, not only to shut down the importation of all refined gas into Iran, and apparently they they have to import 40% of their refined uh, petroleum and diesel, and today they pump 40% less oil than they did 30 years ago. So they're in, in, they had to start rationing gas two years ago, which uh, caused many riots, and there's a tremendous amount of instability because of that. And this uh, attempt to uh, shut down 
any importation of, of gas there is it's got very strong language, and it's designed to tell other nations that you can do business with the U.S. or you can do business with Iran. But if you do business with Iran, you won't do business with us. And if you sell them refined gas, we won't do any business with you. So that was the focal point of their uh, lobbying uh, effort. So that gives you an idea, and I think that um, it, it's, it's a, you can go to their website. You can watch a number of the men who spoke at the plenary sessions, get some idea of that. And um, I think it's a good thing to, to be aware of, to at least be going to their website. And uh, personally, it's a, it's a good source of a lot of information as to what is going on in the Middle East. Now, open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. Hmm? No, I'm just not clipped. Okay. All right. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We Actually, we won't be there very long at all. At the end of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, we see the emphasis, as we do in really the last three verses in the 10th chapter, on the body of Christ, all through this last part of Hebrews, this, this last section in verses 8, 9, and 10, there's this emphasis on the body. Verse 10 says, by that will, that is the will, uh, his will to submit to the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That relates back to uh, verse 5, which is a uh, quote from the Old Testament from Psalm 40, verse 6, a body you have prepared for me. Why is there this emphasis on the body of Jesus? It is because it's emphasizing his humanity. Let's see where the writer is going so we understand why I'm going to make a little, little offshoot this, this, this evening uh, before we get going. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, notice this man, emphasis on his humanity all through this section. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. So we're going to shift gear here from talking about his role as a priest, both at the cross and at the right hand of the Father, and the emphasis on his humanity and the work he did at the cross, which has been the emphasis in chapter 8, his priesthood, chapter 9, having to do with the sacrifices and the Old Testament orientation, as well as the first part of chapter 10, to what he is doing presently at the right hand of the Father. This is what... The writer of Hebrews has alluded to many times already the emphasis on the present session of Christ at the right hand of the Father and why that is important for the believer's life, his spiritual life today in the church age, understanding that role with uh, the Son seated at the right hand of God. So when we are, as I'm preparing in transition from the emphasis in verses 1 through 10 to the next section, we want to look at what the Bible teaches about the humanity of Christ because that's the emphasis. When we look at the throne room of God today, 
there is a man, a human being, that is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity who took on humanity, became flesh, and dwelt among us, John says, in John chapter 1. So the emphasis there is on the fact that at the right hand of the Father, as our high priest, he is overseeing what's happening in the church, the development of the church, which is his body, building his church through the church age in preparation for their future role as the uh, bride of Christ and those who will reign with him in the millennial kingdom. So in preparation for that, we have to understand the emphasis all through the Old Testament on the humanity of Christ. And it's important to understand this because you never know what kind of question you're going to be asked. Like I was asked at 11.30 p.m. last Wednesday night, which is a great time to get a question like this, is why does God make such a big deal about Israel in, in the Bible? And so I answered that. And it's pretty much what I'm covering tonight, except we'll do it in a little more detail. But people don't understand this. This is really important to understand and trace this flow through the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3 is where we have the fall of man. Adam sins. He is the representative of the human race. And in his sin and because of his sin, all of his descendants will die spiritually and come under that same penalty. Adam's sin didn't just affect him, it affects all of his descendants. But Eve's sin would only have affected her. We don't know what would have happened then, and we can't get involved in a lot of hypothetical what-if history, but he was the designated leader, and his was the sin that caused the fall of the human race, and it is in Adam that all die, not in and Eve that all die. And so it's important to understand the role of the man in the fall. But the woman has a unique role and place in the plan of redemption because it is through the woman, according to Genesis 3.15, that the Redeemer is going to come. And so we have this uh, statement made in Genesis 3.15 when God has come to speak to Adam and Eve and recognize and expose the fact that they have sinned, that things have changed, that they're spiritually dead. And now he begins to outline, in verse 14, begins to outline the consequences of that sin. And in verses 14 and 15, he addresses the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, the key word in this passage is seed. And that is a word that has to be traced through the Old Testament, because that shows what God is doing in preparing for the, re, the redemption of the human race. So he begins by saying, I will put enmity, and that word means hostility or antagonism or hatred, there's a state of war that exists between you, the serpent, which we know from Revelation 12:9 is the devil, Satan, the red dragon of Revelation chapter 12. He is the arch enemy of God and every believer. And there is a state of war that exists between the devil and the woman. 
and between your seed, that is the seed of the serpent, and her seed. Now, what strikes you as being a little odd here is the use of that word seed. It's not the first time the word has appeared in Genesis. It occurred uh, in a uh, botanical context back in Genesis chapter 1 when it talks about uh, how the plants will uh, uh, propagate themselves in terms of their own seed. But here it ha- is the first time it's used in reference to uh, reference to human beings. The word is used 224 times in the Old Testament, usually for plants and fruits. But it's also used in a number of contexts for the male semen in procreation context or for the line of descent or descendants. Now, the odd thing is, is that here it speaks of the seed of the woman. Now, in basic procreation biology, the male produces the seed and the female produces the egg. So as soon as you read the seed of the woman, there ought to be a, a at least one raised eyebrow about oh, what's that all about because that's not how it normally works. It, that's an odd phrase and it should, uh, should get our attention. And there is an a vague, vague and veiled allusion here to, of course, the virgin birth, that the woman will give birth without need of male involvement. So it's going to come through the seed of the woman. And there speaks of this perpetual conflict, state of war between Satan and the seed. We see that specifically in Revelation, our studies on Revelation chapter 12, the ages long war between Satan and Israel. And then we have the promise, he shall bruise you, he being the seed of the woman, shall bruise you, the seed of the serpent, on the head. That is understood to be a fatal wound. The word there that is used for uh, bruise is the Hebrew word shuf, which means to bruise or to crush. And I like the use of the word crush because that is a lot more uh, visual and relates the fact that this is a is a fatal uh, fatal wound. It's interesting how you have uh, the the bruising on the head is seen as fatal because it's a head wound. And the bruising on the heel is seen as something different. Even though the same word is used, it does have a range of meanings. So you could translate the first use as crush, and the second one is bruise, which would also bring out the difference that the first event is very very strong and powerful, and using the word crush is very visual as well. And bruising him on the heel uh, shows that it's not quite as... as, uh, as violent and quite as as final, the Greek in this in the uh, Septuagint translated this word with a Greek word tereo, which means to watch or to guard, and I find that to be a very kind of an odd use of the, of that particular word. But when Jerome translated uh, this into the Vulgate into Latin, he recognized the nuances here. And he translated the first word as, with a Latin word, conterere, meaning to crush. And he used the, translated the second word with 
in Sidari, which means to lie in wait, to ambush, to set up a trap. And he is picking, that's not a strict translation, but he picks up the idea there that the seed of the woman would crush and destroy the serpent, but the serpent is the one who's lying in wait in the in the weeds, waiting to just strike at the heel of the person walking by, uh, not realizing that that serpent is there. So Jerome caught the caught the thrust of that in the in the Vulgate. But the emphasis for our purpose purposes looking at this is the emphasis that this is the seed of the woman. The, the Savior has to be true humanity. It can't just be God showing up on the scene and doing something. It can't be an apparition. It has to be someone who is truly human. Nothing else can't be, have, uh, uh, can't be tainted by angelic blood or anything, or not angelic blood, but angelic whatever they have, DNA or distortion, the Genesis 6 problem with the sons of God can't be tainted that way, can't destroy the, the uh, human gene pool or dilute the human gene pool, has to be true humanity. Now, we see this emphasis on the seed as it comes across in subsequent passages in Genesis. For example, uh, there's a covenant in Genesis 9 with Noah and his seed. God promises Abraham to your seed. I will give this land. I will make your seed as the dust of the earth. It's always in the singular. It's a collective noun indicating all those descendants. We translate descendants with an S for a plural, but in the original it's a singular noun, the seed. It views them as a collective whole. Have we heard that concept before this, in, during the last week? It's what I've been teaching on Sunday morning with looking at Israel in Romans 9 to 11 as that collective whole, that singular unity of Israel as Israel and not as individuals, the idea of a corporate entity there. That's what's included in this concept of, of, of seed. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants uh, after you. I think I duplicated that slide. Genesis 12.3. God said to uh, Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this continues the idea of the seed into the subsequent generation. The seed from Adam to Abraham could literally come from anyone in the human race. But after the judgment of the flood, and after the judgment at the Tower of Babel, God decides he's going to limit things a little bit. And instead of working with the mass of humanity, which just seems to constantly be in rebellion, he is going to choose one individual, and he's going to work through that individual and his descendants. And God chose Abraham, elected him, in full consciousness of all the ways the Jews would fail down through history and disobey him and the fact that they would be hard uh, hard-headed and stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious, yet God knew that through them and their ethnic characteristics, God would be able to teach and illustrate things about his grace that he couldn't do with anybody else. 
So there is a a, a reason that God chose. There are reasons, let's say, that God chose Abraham. We don't know what they all were. We don't need to know what they all were. But it also helps us to understand the whole concept of election. That there, it's a corporate election. And that God is working with, through that corporate entity. And I think there's a parallel between the corporate entity of Israel and the corporate entity of the church. In Israel, you are born into it physically, but you're not really Israel, Paul says in Romans 9. You're not true Israel, Israel of Israel, unless you are regenerate, unless you believe the Old Testament promises of a coming Messiah and in the New Testament, unless you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And that is what makes you a true Jew and will only the, those who are Israel of Israel will receive the, the fulfillment of the promises and the covenants. In the church, we enter into becoming a true member of the church the same way by trusting in God's saving promise by believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And that puts us into this corporate elect group, this choice group that God has uh, set aside for specific purposes. So Genesis 12.3 defines uh, Abraham as the one through whom this blessing is going to pass. And then in Genesis 22.18, we see that this is going to go through uh, Isaac, in your seed, all the nations, uh, excuse me, this is still talking about Abraham in relation to Isaac, whom he has just uh, obediently taken to sacrifice, and God provided a substitute. God reaffirmed the covenant there in Genesis 22, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is picked up by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. And Paul says that as a singular, ultimately focused on Jesus Christ. It's through that's the seed, the seed of the woman, the seed promised to Abraham. Paul says this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you go through Genesis, you you start with uh, Adam then Noah, then it's narrowed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when you get down to Genesis 49, uh, 49.10, it's narrowed to Judah of, of uh, Jacob's 12 sons. And it is through Judah that the Messiah will come within the descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Genesis 49.10, we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, there's some debate over how to translate this particular verse, and it hinges on some extremely intricate issues in Hebrew, and I'm not sure I've resolved all of, all of them yet. Uh, the view that most of us have heard is that Shiloh should be translated as a, as a proper name and that this is a title for Jesus. However, there is another uh, position, and that is that this Hebrew word is not a proper name, 
but it is a possessive pronoun, meaning whose it is. And there's a parallel in this phrase found in Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 25 to 27. And if that's the meaning, then it would be translated until he whose it is, the, the one whose right it is to rule, until he whose right it is comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So it emphasizes that royalty uh, comes through Judah, and this, of course, goes to um, the royalty that eventually comes in the house of David. Again, it's true humanity all the way through these passages. Deuteronomy 18:15 to 19 gives us another insight into the nature of the Messiah. In these verses, which I'll just put up here on the screen briefly, the focus is the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Moses is speaking. He says, there will come a prophet like me, emphasizing another, a human being, not someone distinct, some other race or a divine apparition like the angel of the Lord. And so verses 15 down through uh, 19 uh, describe this. I'm going to skip ahead here for the sake of time and look at First Chronicles 17, 10 through following. First Chronicles 17, 10 through following focus on the Davidic covenant parallel to First Samuel or Second Samuel uh, chapter 7, verses 14 and following. First Chronicles 17, 10 through 14. God says, uh, even from that day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you, the Lord will build a house for you, indicating a dynasty for David. When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your seed, literally in the Hebrew. See, it's translated descendants, but it's seed. Just trace that word through the Old Testament. One of your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will uh, establish his kingdom. Uh, he shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. Obviously, that can't talk about Solomon, because Solomon's a human, doesn't live forever. And so it's alluding to someone greater than Solomon. Uh, that's further described at verse 14. I'll settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So down through the Davidic covenant, we have the narrowing of this focus on a human, fully human descendant who will rule over Israel forever. And his dynasty, it's a Davidic dynasty, his throne and his kingdom are going to be established forever. But there's something unique about this promised king, this promised deliverer. And this comes out in the next two passages that I want us to talk about. And that's Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. This is such a great prophecy. It's There's no wonder this is one of the... Uh, favorite prophecies that have often been quoted, cited, and gone to to show who Jesus is and the uniqueness of his person and the uniqueness of his of his birth. And it is a well-known and familiar verse. Therefore, the Lord 
Let's shift. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the controversy that splattered all over Christianity back in the 1950s. For others of you, that's just ancient history. But in the 1950s, there was a new translation that came out that was in the sort of stream of the history of the King James Version, English translation, um, called the Revised Standard Version. And they put in charge of the Revised Standard Version several committees, but most of the translators were of a liberal Protestant persuasion theologically. And you can't separate your theological presuppositions from how you translate the text. I couldn't. Nobody can the issue is just to be honest about it and make it clear, do the best that you can in terms of doing a translation. But their presuppositions came out because in liberalism, there's a rejection of supernaturalism. God really hasn't entered into human history at all. And so there was a rejection of miracles, a rejection of the virgin birth, a rejection of the substitutionary atonement, rejection of the infallibility of Scripture, rejection of a literal second coming of Christ. That makes up the essence of what, was, uh, what came out of the 19th century, uh, European, 19th century European universities and seminaries. And so when they translated Isaiah 7.14, they didn't use the word virgin. They used the word young woman. And, boy, the conservative, the fundamentalists that just barely had evangelicals then, um, the conservatives just hit the roof because this was distorting Scripture. And the debate was over the meaning of the Hebrew word that is translated virgin in this passage. And there's two different words that could be used to, uh, for virgin in different contexts, neither one of which strictly meant virgin. But it could, but it wasn't, you know, hard and fast. One is the Hebrew word betula, and the other is the Hebrew word alma. But the context makes it clear what is what the word should mean. And, of course, this was very clear to the Jewish rabbis who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek, uh, Greek Old Testament of the Septuagint uh, two centuries before Jesus. Before Jesus, they translated it with Parthenos in the Greek indicating a virgin because they understood that's what the context meant. So I want you to just... Look at this for a minute. I want to talk about the there. I want to talk about the context a minute. Israel is the, I mean, excuse me. The southern kingdom of Judah is being threatened by the unholy alliance of the king in Samaria and the Syrians. No, this wasn't yesterday morning's paper. This is three thousand years ago. And we still have the people living in Samaria want to, wanting to ally themselves with the Syrians and attack, uh, attack the Jews. And so uh, Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, is threatened by this massive military alliance of Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel. These individuals are introduced 
in the first, um, first verse. And this alliance of resin and pica uh, brings them against Jerusalem, and they want to destroy Jerusalem. So he's sort of bottled up, and uh, the people are scared to death, and the focal point of this attack is really to destroy the house of David, the Davidic line in Jerusalem, so that the northern kingdom can take power and control over all the Jews ever since the civil war that separated the northern kingdom of Israel from the southern kingdom of Judah, there had been various times of civil war between the uh, north and the south. And so the uh, southern kingdom has a Davidic descendant on the throne. That goes back to the Davidic covenant. So this is one of the ways in which the dragon, Satan, attack, was attacking the house of David to try to prevent the coming of the Messiah uh, in history. So as the Syrians and the uh, armies of the northern kingdom assemble around Jerusalem, uh, Ahaz is scared to death, and the Lord says to Isaiah, who is the court prophet uh, holding the office of prophet at the time, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub. Now, Shir Jashub is his young son. He's not very old yet. He might have been as young as three or four years of age. He's just, he's very young. And it's important to notice that God instructs Isaiah to go with his son. He's not there alone. Go take Shir Jashub, uh, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway uh, to the fuller's field. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. Not a politically correct way to refer to your enemies. They're just stubs of smoking firebrands. Um, because Syria, Ephraim, and the sons of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, uh, saying, let us go up against uh, Jer- uh, Judah and trouble it and make a gap in its wall for ourselves. And thus says the Lord, skip down to verse 7, it shall not stand. They can plot all they want to. They can have better uh, military technology. They can come up with uh, nuclear weapons if they wanted to, just trying to connect it to the present time. God is not ever going to let another nation destroy Israel. I have no doubt that if Iran gets nuclear weapons, that they will try to use them on Israel, but they won't. Because if you make, number one, if you made uh, Israel a nuclear waste dump, you would really kill a tremendous number of Muslims and you would wipe out the Dome of the Rock and you would just make all your little Muslim neighbors really mad at you. Number two, if Israel became a nuclear waste dump, then prophecy couldn't be fulfilled. So it's just not going to happen. So there's nothing there to cause us anything to fear or worry about in relation to Iran attacking Israel. Now, if Iran wants to attack Europe or Russia or somebody else, that's that's a different story. But nobody is going to be successful no matter what their military technology, what their military strength is in attacking uh, the southern uh, in attacking the southern kingdom in the ancient world or modern Israel in the, in the present world. So. God is going to give him a sign, and he tells him, he tells Ahaz through, through Isaiah, 
It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, will be broken. That's what happened when the Assyrians wiped it out, in seven, wiped out the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. Uh, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So God is saying he's not going to allow them to, to be successful. Moreover, verse 10, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. This is God speaking to Ahaz. Ask for a sign to confirm the message that I've just given you so that you have an empirical verification. It's not just some mystical message. But Ahaz, in his false humility, humility in verse 12, says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Wait a minute, the Lord just said to, to do it, so by not asking for it, you're just uh, you're insulting God and disobeying him. Then verse 13, then he said, now in, I've got New King James, it has he as a lowercase. This isn't the Lord talking, this is Isaiah talking in verse 13. So you have to make sure you understand who's speaking. He's speaking the word of the Lord. He says, hear now, what? O house of David. Who's he talking to? Ahaz? Or the collective, corporate descendants of David. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to the dynasty. He's not talking to Ahaz as an individual. He's talking to the dynasty. And there is a shift in the pronouns here. He quits saying you, singular, Ahaz. He now starts saying y'all, the house of David. And that is very important to understand the interpretation of the prophecy here it says, um, Isaiah say, here now, O house of David. That's the problem is the house of David is, is under assault from the enemies. They want to wipe it out. And he says, God said, said uh, through Isaiah, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? See, Ahaz, you're representing the house of David right now, but your arrogance is wearying. I ask you to give me a sign, and you just ask, sit there in your pseudo-humility uh, and say you're not going to give me a sign. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You, plural. Not you, Ahaz, you, the house of David. Behold, the virgin, Ha'ama. It's understood which virgin he's talking about. We know he's talking about a virgin because of the way the word Alma is used in uh, various passages in the Old Testament that it is clearly distinct from other Hebrew words that are used to refer to a young woman. Uh, it, it, when it is used, of, uh, uh, when, well, when the other word betula is used, it usually means a virgin but of any age. But there's a couple of times when betula does not mean a virgin. For example, in Joel 1.8, it's used of a young widow who had been married but had lost her husband. So, of course, she is not a virgin. Since the word betula does not always mean a virgin, it often has a secondary explanatory uh, clause to make sure you understand that in the context it's talking about a virgin. But Alma is used in uh, six passages, other passages in the New Testament. 
And in none of those passages is it used of a married woman. It's always used of a of an unmarried woman. And when you recognize the fact that it's no great sign or miracle for a non-virgin to conceive and give birth, and this is supposed to be a miraculous sign, then you have to understand that it, it must be talking about a virgin. Otherwise, um, if it's not talking about a virgin, it's just an everyday event. So it should be translated virgin. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So it's a normal human birth in the birth aspect. It's normal, not in the conception aspect because it is a virgin conception. But the nine-month development in the womb and then the birth are, are normal. And his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So at this point, it becomes clearer. It's already been made clear, but it becomes even more clear that we're dealing with God in the flesh, an incarnation. Now, Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8, 9, and 11 all fit together in in the context. In Isaiah chapter uh, 7, Emmanuel is to be born, future tense. In chapter 9, Emmanuel is born, and we read about this in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. A child will be born to us, a son given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, uh, Eternal Father, which literally means Father of Eternity. It's not calling the Messiah the Father. The Hebrew reads Father of Eternity, meaning he has eternity as, his, as a characteristic, and Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and on his, over his kingdom. So it connects it to the Davidic promise. So he's going to establish the kingdom as a, as a genuine human. So Isaiah 7 announces the virgin conception and birth as a sign. Isaiah 9, Emmanuel is born. He's called uh, all of these titles. Uh, then in chapter 11, I, the Emmanuel is pictured as reigning and ruling. So these chapters at the heart of the prophecy of Isaiah emphasize the uh, future career of Emmanuel. So the point in all of this is that, once again, it's emphasized that this is a human. Then, when we get into the New Testament, at the time of his birth, there are numerous passages that emphasize the fact that he has a true body. Now, I can go through a lot of passages, but I just want to point out a, a couple of them. Matthew 26:12. This is when uh, the the uh, woman comes in and she pours perfume on uh, on his body to prepare him to anoint him for burial. But it's on his body. He has a genuine human body with human functions, as seen in various passages that talk about Jesus eating even after the resurrection. In resurrection body, he goes down to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Peter and the guys are out there fishing because they've got tired of waiting for him. And he has a little episode where, he's, where they've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. So he says, cast your net on the other side. 
And there's a weird refractory thing I've just learned about that happens in the Sea of Galilee where if you're at the right angle, you can see see fish under the water, but you've got to be at kind of, the light's got to be right. But it was it was well known. Jesus is standing there, says, "There the fish are." And they brought in more than they could handle, and then they come in. And he cooks breakfast for them, and they eat. And he eats, even his resurrection body. He has a physical human body. Uh, he he dies physically uh, when he dies on the cross for our sins. Uh, he's circumcised, Luke 2.21. Uh, he, and even in resurrection body, they can touch him and they can feel him. They can feel the nail prints. Uh, John says this in 1 John 1. We saw him, ta- we saw him and touched him and we felt him and he was real. And so that's the emphasis on his physical body. John 2.21, he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when we get into Hebrews, there's this emphasis on his body, his humanity. He had to die as our substitute, so he had to be true humanity. And that body that he had was perfectly designed by God to reveal God himself through the flesh. And so we end in verse 10 that it is through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ that we have a complete salvation. But it is that resurrection body that is going to go with him through the heavens in the ascension to the right hand of the Father and sit at the right hand of the Father in the present session. And that becomes the focus in the rest of the chapter, which sets the stage for one of the strongest warning sections in the epistle of the Hebrews. And all the warning sessions, sections, as I pointed out, are designed to uh, stimulate us and to motivate us to live in obedience to the Lord and to grow spiritually in preparation for the future. And that if we don't, there will be spiritual consequences both in time and in eternity. So we'll come back next time and start up in verse 11 as we go into the next part of chapter 10. Father, we thank you for this time together tonight. We pray that you challenge us with uh, what we're studying, challenge us with your word, and that we might be stimulated uh, by your word to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.